It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Well, hello, everyone. I am that Williams guy here for yet another episode. And I want to thank the audience because our numbers have continued to show a tremendous amount of growth. And I'm very appreciative of that. But here to put a stop to that nonsense right now with an episode that nobody will pay attention to is Cecil Birch. How are you doing, Cecil? Good. I'm going to I'm going to pull that 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 improvement to a crashing halt. We're going to we're going to run 80 miles an hour into that brick wall right now. That's right. I hear the show screeching to a halt. And I was yep. waiting for the crash. People, people turning off the downloads as we speak. <laughs> well, Cecil, you are a person who loves Brahms ice cream almost as much as I do. So we could do an episode just about yep. Brahms. So I know you're a oh, butter pecan. I, I'm down for that. <laughs> I know you're a butter pecan yeah, guy. Like, like butter pecan is my go-to, right? But I always check to see what they're like monthly spent when i walk in i'm like okay do they have anything different today and i always look and i always go back to butter pecan i'm a peanut butter cup guy okay that, that that's mine that's mine if, okay. and if the rare occasion that they don't have that then it's rocky red but i'm a peanut okay. butter cup guy so i remember i had one one time i went and it was, had been, it was my maybe second or third time I was teaching in Tulsa, you know, and they, those guys were kind enough to introduce me to the greatness that is Brahms. And we'd gone back and they had as a, as a special black raspberry, which is my absolute favorite flavor. And in the West, like in Arizona, you can get, you can't get black raspberry anywhere. But I was like, but I love the butter pecan. And I had this I didn't know what to do. So I ended up getting two scoops of butter pecan and we're sitting there and I'm going, yeah, this is great. Boy, I would like, yeah, maybe I should have done the, the black raspberry. And Mike Brown sits there and goes, well, why not get that too? And I was like, Hey, I'm an adult. You know what? I can eat four scoops of ice cream if I want to. And I did. There you go. I was an adult before I realized they actually served food at one of those. <laughs> I, I didn't know that. I didn't pay attention because we're going in for ice cream. It was yeah. a while before I tried to put their burgers are solid. Yeah. Um, for those that are like, if you're still with us and you haven't joined the street. See, see I told you we're going to crash. We're going to bring this to a halt. Uh, Brahms is a, a uh, they call them Brahms markets because they have like a little grocery store and they serve uh, hamburgers and stuff as well, but they're well known for their dairy products, especially the ice cream. And it is, you have to be within about four hours of central Oklahoma because they are a family run business. They own their own dairy herd and they will not open a location further away from their, their plant for one of their delivery drivers to be able to make a run and get back home to be with their family that night. So that's, if you, it's so amazing. If you live out of that four-hour circle, I think the furthest east they are is Van Buren, Arkansas, which is just across the Arkansas line, like right there at uh, Fort Smith. Uh, they're up into Kansas, Springfield, and then down as far south as Dallas, and that's about it. Yep. 
I've eaten at the one in Springfield and the one in Dallas. To me, it's an Oklahoma thing from my, my year as a boy living in Oklahoma. So like when we're in Dallas at TatCon, I'll go to Brahms every day. Yeah. But it's not like it's not like when I'm in Oklahoma. It's just not the same thing. Oh, I agree. There's some because that my first was in Tulsa. And so yeah. yeah, I'll go to the one in Dallas, great. Or we were on a family vacation and we were driving through Springfield and we're down the highway and I see that pink sign. I'm like Oh my God. And my kids thought I was insane because I just start screaming in the car, pull over. And we had just had lunch like an hour before. I'm like, I don't care. I will, I will purge my stomach of this to make room. But again, it wasn't, and it was great because it's still like ice cream, but you're right. There's something about it being Oklahoma. Yeah, I, I didn't know they had made it as far south as Dallas until a couple of years ago. I went to a class with Daryl and Wayne and I was leaving Dallas on my way back home. And I had just gotten, I'd gotten back to I-20 and like I saw the sign and like right, straight across four lanes of traffic. I don't know how many wrecks I caused, but I was getting to that exit to get off and to try to salvage some of the audience. I guess we want to get started. Yeah, we, pro- we probably should stop <laughs> reminiscing about how great this ice cream is, especially when neither one of us is going to be getting it anytime soon. That's right. That's right. Unless we go get on a plane this weekend. All right. I'm, so- I'm in. I'm at, I'm at Mead Hall in mid-January, and Bill's already saying he's stocking the freezer for me. So I'm like, yes. There you go. There you go. So who is Cecil Birch? I'm... I'm a guy who got obsessed with martial arts and self-defense and empty hand fighting when I was a kid. Um, I was born with pretty severe asthma. So, you know, you go through the bullying stuff and you're like, okay, I want to fight back. So eventually I went to, uh, you know, went to a karate school just down the street from my school. And uh, ever since then, 42 years later, I've, I've not taken a break. I've always been training something somewhere under the eye of a you know instructor at some point since then and i've done uh, man you pretty much name it at some point i've probably got at least a little bit of training in it because whatever the magazines or the book said was like this is the deadliest art or this instructor is the deadliest man on the planet i'd figure out a way to either train with that guy or maybe his number one acolyte and i'd and it was nice because Southern California for really through the eighties and nineties was kind of the Mecca. So most things were available there. And so that's a five and a half hour drive for me. So I would just, I'd just drive over and once a month, twice a month and just train with whatever was the cool guy flavor of the month. And I've been, I don't know, tons of Japanese systems, Chinese systems, I was really heavy into the Filipino martial arts and Indonesian martial arts, probably through the late eighties, early nineties. Um, but eventually I kind of moved to what a lot of people refer to as a combat sports. So it was Brazilian jiu-jitsu wrestling and its sister arts like Sambo judo and then boxing and its sister arts like Thai boxing, Savat, that kind of stuff. And that's pretty much the last 25 years where I focused most of my attention because I know those things work. There's no guesswork. I don't have to take it on faith that this rear naked choke works a certain way. Or when I throw a cross or throw a leg kick, I don't have to take it on faith. I've done it and had it done to me. Um, So that's pretty much what I've been focused on. And then 
I've been teaching, I've been teaching since 1987. And then uh, I've been doing the traveling roadshow instructor gig six, 16 years now. I think, I think this, I think this is my 16th year. Well, speaking of rear naked chokes, I'm not exactly sure if that was the maneuver that he used, but I was a rookie cop with Forrest Griffin. He was, he was like, oh, yeah. He was like one or two higher groups behind me. And one day, just goofing around, he came okay. up and put me in something. And you know how in the movies and TV, like the world goes, there's guys passing out the screen goes from black from the edges. That was real. It happened. Yep. That's, that's what happens when you get choked out. Ask me how I know. Yeah. And that's about the extent of my martial arts training. <laughs> that's pretty, well, that's pretty good. At least you, at least you know what it feels like when it happens. So, yeah. Um, now you have a pretty extensive firearms training background as well. Yeah. You know, I always joke. I was born in Arizona at a time when you, when you came out of the womb, the doctor says 22 or 410, you know? Yeah. And so I've been, you know, shotgun forever and my dad was a heavy dove and quail hunter so i grew up doing that i shot in the competitive skeet league when i was 12-ish 12 13 something like that um never really missed dove or quail up until probably college yeah pretty much through college um then once the real world kind of jumped in i was, didn't have quite the free time that i had before um but yeah i've been shooting as long as I can remember, uh, my college graduation present from my parents, they, I had a choice. They could send me to Europe or they could send me to Gunsight. And I chose Gunsight. So right. I, took, I took 250 in uh, 87, which, and, which was pretty cool, especially now that I look back on it. And the instructors for that class were Jeff Cooper and Louis Auerbach? Yeah. So, so Colonel Cooper did all the lecture classroom stuff. And then he'd drive around on this little motorized tricycle and and because the the groups were really big we had two groups so they split us into two groups so you just go back and forth and then louis auerbach kind of did the same thing he's going back and forth you know and then we'd have um so one of the guys was jerry mccown who was teaching us when when louis was with the other group and jerry's like nobody knows who he is unless you're like arizona but he's old time lawman, brilliant instructor, just, and he's taught so many, like you ask any of the gun site people about Jerry and they're like, it's like, Oh yes. Oh, he's, he was awesome. I actually just got to, uh, Freddie Blish just, um, he, we were all shooting at, at Ben Avery and, uh, Jerry was still, was teaching a small private group. So I got to go and say hi after 30 years, which was really cool. Yeah, cool. And I'm sure there are lots of guys like him. Yep. That their names just never came into any kind of national prominence. Yep. And you know they were were probably extremely influential. And you know, those are the people I would really love to kind of like nailing down and isolating and trying to get some of the history out on those guys as well. Yeah, you know, you look at the guys who were famous. Um, it's usually because they were willing to write yeah. well, books or magazine or, or they were buddies with a, with a prolific writer, uh-huh. you know, but, and there was no internet that could make anybody famous. And so you, all these guys were just like, Hey, you know, I talked to Larry Lindemann about this because he's kind of that way. I mean, people don't realize his background because he doesn't talk about it. And he was with Illinois state police and they had like a very um, non 
public relations thing. Like, you know, they didn't, they didn't like any of their officers ever getting any public notoriety of anything. And so there's tons of guys like that who, you know, and then like Mr. McCown, who just this, who did so much stuff, but we just don't hear about it, you know, which is, which as much as we can bag on the internet and social media and stuff like that, which I do myself, but there's a lot of benefits like podcasts. Right. Um, you guys were talking, I think it was, I think it was you and Gary talking about the, was it the guy from Bakersfield PD? Uh-huh. You know, I never, I had literally, I thought I'm pretty good about being a history nerd like that. And I had yeah. never heard that guy's name. Yeah. I had never heard of him either. And then like all of a sudden in one week, there are multiple sources he came up. See, that's, that's cool that we can kind of touch on and, and at least have a little bit of that before it just kind of disappears i was chatting back and forth with dave spalding today uh, this week and you know we've been reaching out to, to uh some of the people that era trying to get them to come on and do episodes and some of them mm-hmm. are are interested and some of them aren't and you know i kind of liken it to you know that whole world war gener- two generation most of it's gone now and we can't sit down and talk to those guys anymore like the conversation that i would have with my grandfather and my great uncles now versus the ones i had when i was 10 yep you know or even into my 20s when when they were gone is i I wish i could go back and have those conversations with them well we're looking at kind of the same thing that golden era of the late 60s early 70s and then into the 80s a lot of those guys they're not going to be around much longer. And if we don't document that stuff now, it's never going to get documented. Nope. Nope. And how much has already been lost because we didn't have podcast and, and phone camera videos where you can just video somebody and, you know, at the drop of a hat, all these things that we lost, you know, guys going back forties and fifties, you know, I'm sure there were, I'm sure there were, amazing guys in Arizona, New Mexico, Idaho, guys who did some pretty cool stuff, but only a hundred people knew about it. Right. You think, you think Bill Jordan was the only gunfighter working for the border patrol? Right. Exactly. Exactly. He just happened to write a book and get a little notoriety, but I'm sure he probably would tell you, oh yeah, so-and-so is faster than me or so-and-so has been in more gunfights than me. Right. Uh, one more question about that gun sight class. Yeah. Did you at the time have a sense that, wow, that's Jeff Cooper and wow, that's Louis Auerbuck? Or was it two guys just teaching a class? Not Louis Auerbuck. Not Louis Auerbuck because he hadn't really done any, I mean, he hadn't really written anything yet at that point. Uh, maybe a couple magazine articles. I mean, but for sure, I mean, the reason I went there was Colonel Cooper. You know, I'd been reading his stuff at least since I was a freshman in high school, 78-ish, maybe a little earlier. But, you know, I I, I had Cooper on handguns. Um, I had the book that was put out by, like, Outdoor Life. It, it was, like, four guys. It was, like, Jack O'Connor and a couple guys, and Jeff Cooper wrote a handgun section. So I had that, and I've written I read plenty of articles. So I knew who he was. I was like, oh, yeah, this is the guy. This is who you should train with. But Louis Auerbach and Jerry McCown and the other instructors were like, they're just 
the guys who knew more than me and who were teaching the class. Which, and it was great, but they didn't, they didn't have the notoriety. It was later and I'm, I, I think I got one of our bucks first books. And I'm like, I know that guy, you know, I'm at the gun shot, gun, uh, gun show in Phoenix walking around and I see the book and I'm like, Hey, so I buy, I, I think, I don't know if that was a shotgun book or what I can't even remember, but at the time, no, just, just Colonel Cooper. Yeah. It's kind of funny. Uh, before I found the open enrollment training circuit, all of my training came through the Georgia public safety training center or in, you know, agency wide training. Well, there's a guy teaching uh, at, through there that is one of the what's now six guys that have shot a perfect score at Rogers. <laughs> you know, no, I, I knew he was good when I was taking stuff from him because you could see it. Right. And he hadn't shot the perfect score at Rogers at that time. He'd only done like a 123 or a 124. Oh, oh no, yeah. don't even pay attention to that. I mean, geez. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, now knowing what Rogers is and knowing how rare of accomplished that that is, and then knowing that he did it, it's kind of like, wow. Yep. Yeah, he, he he's pretty damn good. Yeah. And, I mean, I mean, when when our book's teaching, and then kind of like the in between stuff where there's breaks or lunch or whatever, you know, he might tell a story about something that happened to him in South Africa or something, and you're and you start going, whoa, this guy knows stuff. But it not, you know, it wasn't like now where I look back and go, dummy, you should have paid. It's not like I didn't pay attention, but, you know, mm-hmm. same talking to your grandparents or, or, or something like that. I probably would have asked more questions about him. Yeah. Uh, you know, just the, the things that you find out after the fact that you wish you had known at the time. Yep. And um, yep. now you told me in, before we got started recording that your first class was actually with Chuck Taylor. Yep. That was, uh, that was 85. I was still in college then. I would, Oh, I know. I just turned 21 and I've been looking, you know, since I started reading combat handguns magazine in like 78, 79, and I've been looking, Oh, I'd like to train. But for the most part at, at that time, you had to go to the schools, right? You had to go to Chapman's Academy or, or um, gun site or something like that. And I was like, oh man, it'd be great. And, and the same was, it was interesting because at the same time, it was similar with martial arts. There wasn't really the seminar circuit for martial artists at the time. So it was the same thing. I'd love to train with that guy, but they don't come to your area. And I was reading Shotgun News, looking through it. And there was this advertisement for a couple of classes he, Chuck Taylor was teaching. And I was like, Ben Avery, oh, at the time it was... Um, before it was Black Canyon shooting range. And I'm like, oh, that's like 30 minutes north of my parents' house at the time. And it was uh, one day, it was a combat shotgun and special weapons class. And we did shotgun and special weapons was basically submachine guns. And I'm like, I have my shotgun. The first, the first firearm I bought myself where I filled out the 4470 was a Mossberg 500. So I had my shotgun. So I wrote to him because you couldn't email or send text <laughs> messages, right? So I wrote to him and said, hey, Mr. Taylor, I'd like to take the class, but I don't have, you know, I'm a 21-year-old college student, don't have any automatic weapon. He goes, oh, don't worry, we'll, we'll have loaners. I'm like, done. So I ran a Sterling submachine gun for the entire day. 
So shotgun Saturday and then automatic weapons on Sunday. And that was my first defensive firearms class I ever took. And it was, it was, it was excellent. I mean, it was a good, like I said, I'd already been shooting shotgun. So it wasn't like I didn't, it wasn't new to me, but then, oh, here's how we're going to operate it in this environment. It was really cool. I thought he was a really good instructor. I thought he was, he was really personable. There was no, I'm Chuck Taylor. I'm way up here. He was very down to earth. And like I said, mostly the other guys in the class are 30, 40, 50 year old businessmen or cops or ex-military. And here's this stupid 21 year old college kid. He treated me the same as everybody else. I never trained with him again after that because he never was back in Arizona. And And by that time, then I was off doing some other stuff. Yeah, that's, in that era, we're talking that conventional buckshot, so before flight control. Yep. Was there a heavy emphasis on slugs in the shotgun? Um, what was his methodology? I wouldn't say heavy, but it was very much, um, he was very much in favor of like some kind of ammo carry on the shotgun so that you could drop in a slug if you needed to. You know, there, we, we did a lot of those kind of drills. Um, he was still a buckshot guy for general use, but, you know, it's like, Hey, you know, I think, I think we were really patterning it and past 15 yards, like nothing. He had a, he had something an SKB. He had something that, that he could get a pretty good pattern out to 25. And I think he had a, 870 that it could do that too but mine and most of the other guys in the class about 15 and so he's like hey if you have to take that 25 50 yard shot here's what you do um and so have something available where you can dump in a couple slugs we did a lot of those drills yeah i remember my first formal shotgun training you were doing the pattern and about 15 yards is where the yep. cylinder bore shotgun started to lose it with traditional buckshot. Yep. And some of the guys at the training center had, you know, shotguns that they could put the choke tubes in and were running modified chokes and they were able to get out to 20 and 25 yards. And I just thought that was amazing. And I convinced uh, one of the guys there to take my barrel home overnight and thread it for choke tubes. <laughs> and and he sold me a choke tube that he had and i ordered one from Brownells and had it shipped to him to replace <laughs> the nice. one that i had bought from him nice. so that he would have another one and i nice. thought that was the just the greatest thing ever until flight control came along right exactly and then all of a sudden you go oh this is how it should be done yeah boys back in the day this is what yeah. we used to have to do yeah exactly yeah um any of the other you know, legendary names that we now or now that we think of legendary that you've trained with that you'd like to talk about? Um, you know, it was funny. Um, so I had got this pretty good grounding right in the beginning. Um, and then came like at the, at one, in one sense is the best thing that ever happened. And in one sense was a complete disaster. I met the woman who became my wife. <laughs> and so, you know, we get married have a kid. We don't have any money, right? Every dime we had was babysitter, formula, diapers, new baby clothes. 
Um, and so all these hobbies that I had and all these things I like to do kind of went out the window. And so I, I, I kind of had to have a, I made a choice of, I could have really only do one thing. I couldn't do all the things I like to do. So I focused on martial arts. That was what I was going to put my time, energy, and money into. So I kind of went through this period, maybe from 90 to 2000, 2001, where, you know, I had a couple guns. I'd go to the range once a year, you know, just to shoot. Every now and then I'd pick up a copy of Combat Handguns magazine or something like our SWAT or something, but it wasn't the same. So I, I missed out on a lot of that training. Um, I did look into trying to train with Jim Cirillo. That was probably, that was probably late nineties. Cause I started to see him pop up every, you know, there'd be a little announcement. Oh, I'll be at the firearms Academy of Seattle or something like that. So I thought about that, but again, I still couldn't pull it off because it wasn't that close by. So I kind of, the, for, from a shooting perspective, that period was kind of a dead time for me. Mm-hmm. But then when I got back into it, had money, had time, then I started to be able to, you know, I've done Larry Vickers. I've done Pannone, uh, McNamara, Langdon, uh, this guy named Gibbons, who you probably don't know much about. Um, I've never heard of him. Yeah, I, I know he's he's not real well known, but I've taken a bunch of classes from him. Um, and and then when I when Tom asked me to teach at TACCON, it was um, that was my chance to kind of to, to see and train with some of them. The first guy I ever met at the first TACCON was John Farnham. It was really cool. I kind of, I had come in like right before lunchtime on a Friday. And so, and people were training, they're off doing it. And I'm walking, this is at range, you know, this is at the, the old, the actual range master place there. And I walk in and look around. I'm like, well, they haven't told me to go home yet. So good so far. And John Farnham sitting on that couch that's straight across as you go in and he was eating a sandwich. And I, in my head, I'm like, oh, I should go say something, but he's eating a sandwich. He, he doesn't know who I am, blah, blah, blah. No, I, I'm going to go up to him. And man, he immediately, he wipes out his hand, shakes my hand, reaches into his wallet, pulls out his card and says, you need anything. You just call me. He didn't know me from Adam, but that's the kind of guy he was. And then Massad's the same, was exactly the same way. You know, I'm like, oh, I've been reading In the Gravest Extreme in 1979 and blah, blah, blah. And I read all your stuff. And he's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah thanks, people. <laughs> so I'm not the only one that does that. Oh, I do, I do it to his face. I do it to his face all the time. Yeah. But yeah, so I got to do a lot more since, you know, mm-hmm. after that time. But I, I at least had those couple early experiences, which, you know, were they didn't make me as good a shooter as I could have been, but that was entirely my fault. That wasn't their fault. Right. You know, um, now I'd be like, oh man, if I could go through the 250 with Cooper and Auerbuck, I'd, I'd, I'd just sail through that class now, uh-huh. you know, but back then I was like, nah. I did run it with a 1911, so I do get that extra cred. Cool. Uh- I gotta tell you though, now when I get a chance to see like some of the best going today at like TACCON, I like just to go stand off over to the side 
with a notepad or I'm taking notes on my phone and I listen to their explanations and their teaching points. And then yep. while people are shooting, that's when I'm over there taking notes and I'm not having to worry about it. I'm going to do the shooting on my own. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but, but hearing the wisdom and the nuggets and the teaching points is where, where the benefit is for me. I remember one time it was, I think it was the first year at Darst. Um, Craig and I are wandering around um, and we walk in and mass is teaching his his lecturing we walk in and you know he just teaching away and we both look at each other craig and i look at each other and just go that guy is a master if like i could get one tenth of his ability to grab and control a crowd through words alone i i would i would be such a successful instructor it's yeah. so cool just to see those guys do that same kind of thing. And when like a Farnham shows up on the range, you're like, I am paying attention to this guy, you know? And then a lot of the newer guys too, that I think of, you know, like, like Jedlinski and all these guys, I think have really cool stuff or watching Ernest teach the one year. And I, you know, it's cool to just, like you said, just sit there and go, how, what, how are they getting this idea across? Are, are, are they speaking better than I am? Are they communicating better than I am? It's an, that's awesome. I love doing that. Yeah. You know, I posed this question to, to Tom the other night when, when, on his episode, and I'm going to pose it to you from both the firearms training and a martial arts uh, standpoint. And that kind of goes back into what we were just talking about. I think the, the guys like, you know, Farnham and Moss and, and, and all the, that level of guy, they've been through all of the, the journey and they've already distilled mm. it down. They've been delivering their product and they have distilled it down to what their message is and what, and what their product is basically. Yeah. And then they get to refine that and they just get better and better and better at doing it. Whereas you know, a lot of the, the younger guys and stuff, I'm still, you know, 20, I'm two weeks away from 23 years on the job. And like, now I still run across stuff and I'm like, okay, this is great. But how do I go, you know, what do I take out of my program and, and put this in, or is it worth making changes? Yeah. So from a martial arts standpoint, if you get exposed to something new, how do you make that determination of okay I'm, I'm going to stop what i was doing over there and start doing this and, and integrate that in i think my process always came down to does this demonstrably work better than what i've been doing or because i think this is just as important is it easier or faster to learn Right. Because like, you know, OK, here, I'm going to take this art. I'm going to work 10 out, 10 years. I got to, you know, five hours a week, every week. And in 10 years, I'm going to be a badass. Cool. Or here, two hours a week, this art. And in five years, you'll be just as good. Oh, OK. Well, I think that second one is probably a better methodology. Um, so it was always that. Um and I think because my focus, and I love everything about martial arts, right? I love the historical part on some stuff. There were some arts um, that I took almost just 
for the historical part of it. You know, it wasn't really something I was like, uh, this this Chinese system, Bajichuan. It was like, it's cool, but I, I didn't really see myself using it in a fight, but it was a really cool historical art. So I, I spent about a year kind of working on that. But my main driver was, does this work? Will this help me defend myself or defend my loved ones? And so I was always looking, okay, well, this works pretty good, but oh, you know what? This works a little bit better. Oh, this works better. Or this is not easier to train. That's the wrong terminology. More efficient. To tr- it's more efficient doing this system. Um, and that's why I ended up going to the combat sports because each each time it was like, okay, I'm doing this and I'm spending three years on this art and I'm pretty good at this, but I go spar this boxer and I'm knocked out. I'm like, <laughs> wait, hold on a second. Um, I remember I was doing, I was training real heavy, um, an art called Savat, which is like French Thai boxing, basically. It's really cool art. Um, and everything we did was with another person. We didn't, we didn't hit pads. We didn't hit bags. Everything was like, either you were, there was some level of sparring, either out and out trying to bang hard or just going for light contact but everything was always with another person and and at the same time I'm doing a couple other arts where we did a lot of drills and pad work and so after about a year or so of Savat I'm going back and I'm going to this the other art and I'm beating everybody when we spar and I'm like wait a minute these guys they look better hitting the pads these guys move better. All this stuff that should say, you know, they're better at that art. They should beat me in sparring. And I'm destroying some of them sometimes. And that was sort of that, I'm kind of thick-headed. So this didn't come overnight. The epiphany didn't happen immediately. It was a slow build. But eventually, even it penetrated my brain. And I'm like, wait a minute. Why am I doing this stuff when this is, noticeably more effective and I so I think that it has to be oh and when you when you're talking about effectiveness it has to be true too many martial arts traditionally have um, done it in this artificial way we're going to do this set form maybe we're going to do a two-man form and we're going to do it really fast and hard so it looks like fighting but it's still a choreographed thing which is not fighting. I'm like, that's not what I'm interested in. If I'm, you know, essentially force on force, right? In, a, in the shooting world, we'd think of it as force on force. I'm going to go up against this guy and he's got the freedom to act as an opponent would, not grab my wrist, no the other wrist. You know what I mean? Nothing. You, you did know, it wrong. You didn't come in like this. Exactly, exactly. None of that fake stuff. It's like this guy can now attack me in however manner he sees fit. And I have to deal with it, you know, that true pressure. And then the art that's demonstrably, and again, does it work? And can it reasonably be trained in a reasonable amount of time? And I think if you are confronted with something that's better, you, you need to at least look at it, right? You can't, you can't just say, no, I've got my old stuff. Right. And, and like Tom. So he's, you know, coming up the old school training, 
then he's modern technique, probably hardcore, super, you know, Cooper-esque weaver. And then this, but there's, he's always looking that next step. He doesn't, he's not throwing everything else out and starting fresh, but it's like, is there something here that I can, that can be better? Is there something, you know, so I, I think the first time I saw Tom teach was at the mid Atlantic training conference. So that'd be 2010. So I think that was the first time I saw him teach, you know, and I was just in the advanced handgun instructor class, like three weeks ago. It's not the same in the sense of, yeah, the material overall and the presentation and all that, but there's these subtle things that he's like, I'm doing this now because this is demonstrably better than what was before. And I think you have to do that. You know, you need to keep looking like, you know, I've heard some uh, criticisms of uh, people using red dots on pistols, you know, well, it's this, and there's these reasons and whatever. Have you taken the time to shoot a red dot? Not, not a few rounds, you know, on the range, but have you run it? Have you looked at how to run it um, at its highest level? Okay, you have? Cool. Now I'm going to listen to your critique because it's informed. But if you're just the, you know, the get off my lawn guy, I don't want to listen to your newfangled rock and roll music, then, you know, that's just, you can't do that. But at the same time, you can't just arbitrarily, just because something new doesn't mean it's better. Just be, just because, oh, this is the latest craze, you go, all right, let's take a look. You know, I think you always have to filter it through that. Does this work? And is it more efficient to train? Cool. What can we take from this? Oh, and does it fit in my context? Because I think that gets left out of the equation all the time, right? Um, the, the context in which a, you know, tier one spec ops guy operating in a team environment on a proactive mission to go take out somebody is not necessarily me stopping at the grocery store on the way home at eight o'clock at night in a crummy neighborhood, you know, contact the, the technique or gear or whatever might not translate. So you have to figure all that stuff out, but I think you have to do the work, right? You, you have to at least look at it. You can't just be lazy. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to rant like that. That was, that was, that was, that was a little long-winded. I didn't mean to go off on that way. That's great though. You you said something in there that gave me a line of questioning that we had not discussed. Okay. And, you know, you talked about, you took some things just for the historical aspect of it. Yeah. And all of a sudden it just dawned on me, you know, combative, application of firearms as we think of it now really not that old nope but some of the martial arts stuff is centuries old thousand you can go back like a thousand years on some of them yeah because we've had hands and fists and feet Mm -hmm. you know for as long as we've been humans yeah and we've been fighting each other for as long as we've been humans yeah so there have been that's been involving So if you go back into one of those historical, you know, martial arts context, 
is there ever, oh, no, 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 we can't do that because that's not what our technique is. Like, is there anything like, if you're doing something like a Taekwondo or some other really old form and you start trying to do something else in one of those classes or whatever, like they get all upset that you can't do that. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Because there are a lot of, and I don't think this is wrong. There are a lot of instructors, martial arts instructors who want to preserve the purity of the art. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. And, and they don't want this outside influence. Like they're like um, the some of the Japanese systems, they're called the Koryu systems, which are like the really traditional ones going back four or 500 years. And they can trace the lineage of every instructor since then. And they, you know, they take it super seriously as like the, the heads of the system now in Japan of whatever that system would be. They are like, this is what was used 400 years ago. This was passed down to me this way. Most of them are like, I'm not going to alter this system because there's that, there's that, um, honoring what came before and preserving it for that reason. And I think that's, Uh I don't mind that where I would have a problem and where I do have a problem and where I got into arguments is when that person says, and this stuff is applicable now. No, it is not. You, what we did then is not necessarily the same. What works great in the context of uh, 17th century China is not necessarily what works right now. I mean, there might be pieces of it, but not, but not wholesale. And I think trying to do that is fine. As long as you say that, like, like if you have a firearms guy who says, I went to gun site, I, I was a gun site instructor and a Cooper acolyte in the seventies. So I'm going to teach this class exactly like Gunsight 250 was just to preserve that. Cool. Oh, but here's some other things that work a little bit better now. But this class is, what's the class that uh, Carl Wren teaches? Historical handgun. Yeah, the historical handgun. I mean, that's cool. But, But Carl's not saying, hey, let's shoot the way the FBI guys did in 1930. Yeah, you shoot the drill that way just to understand the history of it. I think that's cool. Right. Um, that was, and that was one of the reasons that so many traditional martial artists just hated the UFC when it first came out. I mean, it really wasn't until the early two, eh, probably 2005-ish, 2006, before most of them shut up. It was just be oh that's not martial arts that's not this blah blah because they were so offended at this approach and it was so contrary to everything they did that they just you know blatantly said oh it doesn't work that's no good it's not fighting okay that's not the way you should be doing it right it should be an alive thing. Yeah, but you know that's the one thing about the the martial arts is it's so much easier to pressure test. Yeah, that is true. That is true. <laughs> I mean, it really, we haven't been able to pressure test shooting truly since in the last twenty years. Before you know, safety equipment and things like you know, simunitions and UTMs and even airsoft came to the point where we could do it fairly safely. Man, I'm trying to imagine. Hey, you know what we're going to do? 
we're going to put these wax bullets in. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. You're not going to shoot me with a wax bullet. Sorry. Right. But yeah, you could, it, it was always easier. Like, I think the martial arts, as far as looking at, um, you know, modern functional fighting, I think the martial arts were about 20 years ahead of defensive firearms use because it was a little easier. I mean, I remember 1984 when I was training with a guy in Long Beach. I mean, we were banging hard. You know, we had mouthpiece and boxing gloves and pretty much that was about it. And we went really hard and I probably got plenty of um, brain damage and CTE dating back to that time, but we didn't die. Right. You know, and so we, it was easier to do it then. Whereas yeah, firearms, (laughs) there's a lot of, a lot of mouthing off in the firearms community, especially before simunitions. Right. You know, and people conjure up images of what they think a confrontation is going to look like. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we can somewhat simulate that in force on force and firearms with the simulation, which yeah. in, in, in your world, you, you two guys go stand over there. All right, go at it. Yep. We can, we can see what that confrontation is going to look like pretty easily. At least, yeah, pretty quick. at least the combative portion of it, maybe yeah. not all the other stuff that leads up to it. Yeah. Yeah. It is much easier. Um, I don't need a range, you know, I need minimal equipment. Um, it's much easier to dial up and down the, the, the intensity. Hey, let's go really light. I mean, especially like in jujitsu, like a good chunk of our sparring is done at 50 to 70% intensity. You know, you just kind of go in and you're trying to win. But, you know, you're talking like I'll do this with my training partners all the time. Oh, that was a good. Oh, that was a good try to sweep. But you didn't get it. Ha ha. You better look out. Here comes the armbar. You know, and you're jaw jacking with each other and having fun. But, you know, it's not quite as easy to do even with Sims where, you know, you're not going to die. But nobody wants to get shot with those things. Yeah. You two just go over there and shoot each other a little bit. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Just kind of. You know, dial down the the feet per second yeah. on that on that round going out. Eh, a little <laughs> hard. Yeah, that, that doesn't work. No. Uh, you know, I went through a two week use of force instructor school, in which got to do a lot of force and force force on force laboratories with trained actors playing the role players, so it's mm. not cops trying to one up each other. Oh, okay. and and just getting that constant exposure to it for two weeks how much now I process things so much more efficiently. And I remember in the first couple of iterations, most of them were closer range and I was able to get hits without focusing on the sights. Yeah. Uh, But then all of a sudden I was confronted with a 17 yard target moving away from me that I had to take. And I had to see my sights to make that shot. And exactly, you know, so I was able to process the question of, you know, all right, I got to make this get on the sites and get it. And, and, you know, and the audience can say, well, it really wasn't real, you know, because you knew it was a simulation, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But if I had failed the situation simulation, I'd have got sent home. And, and that, and I've had these discussions and I've talked to, 
scientists and people who do this and, and, and physiologists and neuroscientists, that chemical hormonal dump, that adrenaline thing, it doesn't change. It's not, it's not a different chemical when you're stressed out about work. It's not a different chemical when you're doing a competition or, you know, something that you're graded on. And it's not different than when you're fighting for your life, how it's dumped into your system, how much and how fast, okay, that might tweak, but the same, it's the same chemicals affecting your body the same way. So I always found it interesting when people who don't compete or who don't do force on force, who don't do those kind of things will say, but it's not real. Okay. How is it not get, okay. We can only approach 90% reality. I had, a, I had an argument with, with another firearms instructor about this because he was poo-pooing all of that. And I'm like, okay, so let's say my jujitsu sparring, my boxing sparring, force on force stuff. I can only get 90% close to the reality. But what I get out of that is I know I can perform. I know I can do what I'm supposed to do. I can do that guard pass. I can do that choke. I can get that gun out. Okay. You don't do any of that. You're not going to test that at all. So you're hoping that when it's a hundred percent, you're going to be able to do what you're supposed to do. Well, at least I know I've got a pretty good shot of that last little bit probably is not going to throw me off. I don't think, and based on teaching at this point, thousands of hours of force on force stuff, well, either I've been a student, assistant instructor, or an instructor, thousands, thousands of hours. It don't work that way. (laughs) Somebody who's never done that before, you don't look good the first time. Well, somebody who's never done it before can just say, well, I just never let anybody get that close to me. Exactly. Exactly. That is what, that is one of the things guaranteed to set me off and try to put my head through the, to the computer screen. When I see that it's like, Oh, okay. So you're a hermit living on a mountain in the Himalayas. Cause other than that, if you're living in urban America, people are getting close. Okay. You go into Starbucks, you're in line. Some guy comes up to you and he's, you know, two feet away. You turn around and go, back off. I'm in fear for my life. Okay, let's see. Do that at the airport. Let's see what let's see who goes to jail at that point or the loony bin for a psycho battle. Yeah. You know, it, it, you're always people are always close to you. Don't care who you are. Yeah, a mutual friend of ours uh, just yesterday posted online about he was at the airport waiting to get on the plane. And some guy four spots behind him in line to board just decided that's it. I'm charging to the front and, and I'm taking over. Okay. They're this, they're face to face. And well, that, and of course our friend back down, all right, whatever, dude, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna fight you over, over seating priority on a plane. Right. Right. But they got in close contact with each other. That's not something you can, and you're going to get on an airplane. How are you going to stay away from people on an airplane? Uh, on you know you live in new york city you live in san francisco you're getting on the the tram system uh, the subways or however you live in london you're getting on the sub i mean this whole this this concept i've never let anybody get close to me you are a liar go to court to answer a speeding ticket and tell me how that goes when you don't let people get close to you Uh 
it's it's just such a ludicrous thing and i think it speaks to people not not really looking at the real world like in their head they built that construct of themselves as john wick as this dangerous dangerous man but the problem is when you're confronted with the reality all of a sudden and that construct just collapses because it's not real bad stuff is going to happen you know you like like i always compare it to you've got your fighting for your life app open on your phone or your computer. Well, that we think we walk around all day long with that app open. No, you don't. You have the app about, Hey, what's on Facebook. Hey, you know, how am I going to pay this big bill? Hey, you know, I really ticked my wife off. You know, those are the apps open. And then all of a sudden, boom, Mr. Mr. Dude comes at you. Now you have to open that fight for your life app out of nowhere if you're not used to to opening it quickly and getting to it you're doing what tom always say i like you know tom has these really good lines that are that i just steal whole, you know wholesale because they're so great because he goes everybody says he came out of nowhere or why is this happening to me both those are just wasting time and irrelevant but if you've never prepared for it realistically, that's what you're going to do. And again, I know because I've seen it. You see it in videos. You see it in real world, you know, police reports. You, you've seen it. And you, and, you, and you see it in force on force evos over and over and over again. I was just teaching a class, um, my close contact handgun class, which is basically how not to get into a fight. But you can't advertise it that way, right? So you let them shoot a couple hundred rounds live fire. And then the, and then the rest of the class is do everything possible to not get into a fight, you know, managing on their contacts, all that kind of stuff. And then we'd let them work it in force on force. And, and well, you just let the cat out of the bag, everybody that stayed past the ice cream discussion. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Now they're like, well, I ain't signing up for that class because I want to fight. But we, we did it. And when, so the, the guy who was the role player, he went up to the the good guy, the student, and he, what did he say? He said uh, something in Spanish, uh, por favor, amigo. I can't remember what it was. And literally this guy who, who is an average dude, um, not any, not anything goofy, just an average dude. And as soon as that guy um, said Spanish, the guy stepped back, put his hand on his gun and just did this. Didn't say a word. I'm like. So hopefully, you know, the role player kept trying to get him out of it, but he just kept doing that. So I called it and then I debriefed it and I said, um, so what do you think would have happened when you, if you did that for real? He goes, I'd probably be going to jail. Yes. But he had never thought about anything. So that first reaction is, you know, I'm going to threaten another human being with shooting them who just came up to me because he was speaking a foreign language. Right. And that would play really well in today's media society. You know, that's he's going to be crucified. But if you've never thought about that, if you've never put yourself in that position, not just thought about it, not just watched it on a video, but put yourself in that situation. It's you're not going to all of a sudden do things correctly. This doesn't happen. 
And, you know, it's when people conjure up these situations in their head, they always imagine themselves as the winner. Mm-hmm. They don't ever typically imagine themselves as loser and what the stakes of losing are. Yep. And, you know, one of the things with, with training, okay, so you can only get to 90% of what a real fight would be like. Okay, that's 90% ahead of where somebody that's not been there would be. And if some guy comes up and takes you to the ground, it's not the first time that's happened to you. And you're not going to have the same panic reaction nope. to the novel stimulus. Right. You know, oh, that was the ghost signal. Yeah. All right. So he just got an advantage of me from the start. Right. Um, you know, and that's the purpose of training is to try to remove as much of the novel stimuli as yep. possible. And so with, with that is firearms training. When I, when I talk about firearms training, I mean the combative application of firearms right. training. Because, mm-hmm. you know, if you're taking lessons on how to shoot skeet better, that's firearms training. That's true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we could go take fencing lessons. And that's true. Of course, where I grew up, fencing would be we'd have to learn how to put up a barbed wire fence. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, or you could go learn how to do traditional dueling pistol whatever but yep. like the modern combative firearms training is that a martial art absolutely i think i think what's happened is just like movies and tv screw us up for what a gunfight looks like it also screws up screws us up about martial arts right there's this weird thread that happens through the movies where the martial it's it's david it's kwai chang kang Oh, I do not want to fight. I love everything. And, and then, you, you know, and there's a couple arts like that, that have that as a, as a soul polishing type thing, you know, like a keto or something like that. It's not, they don't really push it as a fighting art, but what's happened, I think is that's what most Americans think a martial art is right? We're wearing robes and we're, you know, we're meditating and then somehow we're going to channel our energy and beat people up. It's like, that's not a martial art. That's a, 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 like almost a philosophical system using physical, you know, physical actions, right? A martial art. And this is 98% of them is a methodical way to fight, uh, to learn how to fight. And it could, and it could take on whatever form is most appropriate. Like in 15th century China, that's going to be spear, sword. In 16th, 17th century Japan, it's going to be bow and arrow, um, uh, spear, and the sword. In post-World War II Hong Kong, it's going to be like a uh, fighting system like Wing Chun, which is a very, like almost no kicks, all short, straight punches for the most part and elbow strikes, which is perfect for that environment. You know, you know, Hong Kong, super crowded, not a lot of space. Okay, so you're going to fight in tight quarters. So it's going to look like that. Well, we have that. I mean, post-Civil War, what is the... Uh, uh, where I'm from, we don't use that terminology. Oh, sorry, uh, the war... Wait, wait, wait. The... Uh, I call it the war of secession. That, that's it. That's what I was trying to come up with. The word. I knew it was that the, the war, war of secession. Of, war of secession. You know, some people right. try to say Northern aggression, but uh, 
we shot first. Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> the wolves said, or as my grandparents, my grandmother's called it, the unpleasantness. <laughs> but you know, since then, the you know the most logical, efficient way to fight for most people in America is with a firearm. Uh-huh. So just like the bow and arrow and the samurai sword would have been is the martial art for the Japanese and w- whatever culture has their thing that this is the best way to fight. Firearms would be a component of that along with probably boxing and wrestling would be a component of that for Americans. That's there's no way you can categorize defensive firearms use as anything but a martial art. Cause all a martial art is, is a systemic way and a systematic way to, to, learn how to use something how to fight realistically in your environment okay firearms okay you you again you you live someplace else it 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 might be someplace something different a different time you know uh medieval europe it's going to be i got to fight learn how to fight in you know full armor you know and swing a mace well all of that's the martial art just because we don't talk about, oh, you point the gun at the target and then you project your consciousness that way. And, you know, that's not a martial art. That's something extra that too many people think is martial art. Most, most martial arts are one step above thug life. You know, uh, traditionally, the, the Japanese jujitsu systems. Um, after the Meiji re- Restoration in like 18, whatever that was, 1868-ish, the, and the samurai class was outlawed, the only people who were doing jujitsu outside of the police were looked at literally as thugs. They were like, oh. And when Jogoro Kano, who um, created judo, he was like a upper middle class kid. And he went to Tokyo to be, because he was going to be an educator. And he ended up running a university and his parents set him off. And he said, oh, I'm going to find a jujitsu school to train at. And they're like, no, you will not do that. That was a, you know, most fighting is looked at throughout history is, is, you know, you're a thug, you're a meathead, you know, Um, that's a martial art. You know, we can, we can make it actually see the term martial arts, not even uh, the, that actually the correct term. That's actually a more um, came about like the, po- the Victorian era, you know, it, the way they were looking at the martial pursuits. Like if you look at other cultures, they didn't call it martial art. Um, and oh, I can't think of the Japanese term, but it basically be war arts. Okay. Um in in China, like everybody thinks, kung fu or gung fu is martial. No, you know what gung fu is? Work hard. That's the translation of gung fu. So if you are a really good bricklayer, you're doing gung fu, right? It's, but that's a more accurate description than martial art for the most part. It's like, hey, we're gonna put blood, sweat, tears, time, and effort into this to attain a skill it just so happens that our skill is fighting okay i'm gonna fight with a knife i'm gonna fight with a stick i'm gonna fight with a sword i'm gonna fight with um you know a farming 
implement, or I'm going to fight with a firearm. I mean, in Japan, in some of the traditional code use systems, the ones you can usually, you could trace back to, you know, the warring era, you know, 1600, some of them have, as they've categorized the weapons, okay, sword, knife, um, spear, bone arrow, like all these, one of the categories in a lot of them is firearms. You know, and some of them, because they have these big, um, they'll have these big festivals in Japan where they get representatives from these systems and they kind of do demos. And you'll see, you know, sword stuff and this. And you, you, they also will do the firearms. Now they're the old, you know, matchlock, arcus guns, but they'll still have those. That's about the only gun legal in Japan. <laughs> but you know that that is part of the martial art. So it's always weird to me because I always have I got one foot in both worlds, and I pretty much always have. So I got I'm in the definitely in the defensive firearms world, but definitely in the martial art world. And I always thought it was funny that there was this divide. I'm like, I didn't, I didn't get it. I felt like I was, you know, um, from Zoolander. I feel I'm taking crazy pills because I'm like, I don't get it. I, I looked at it as just another component of martial art. I might defend myself with my 1911. I might defend myself with my folding knife. I might defend myself with my empty hands. I might defend myself with, you know, that chair, you know. It's if you have a systematic and systemic way of learning and teaching and applying that stuff, you are doing a martial art, period. And I'll argue, I'll argue that with anybody who wants to try to say it's something different. So it's anybody not. with an internet connection that has never taken any formal firearms training or martial arts training has a valid opinion on that, right? Oh yeah. Oh <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yes. What is it? You have a right to your opinion, but you also have the right to be called about, called upon, uh, called out for the stupidity of your opinion. Right. Is it as bad in the physical martial arts world as what we see in the guns world? Like somebody that's taken three Taekwondo lessons wants to say, no, 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 Cecil, you're wrong on. There is that thread. There is that thread. And I blame Bruce Lee. Okay. He's one of the main reasons because there's a lot of people who don't understand what he did, you know. So Bruce Lee is like, oh, you know, train, learn stuff, absorb what is useful, discard what the rest. It's like, okay, but what they forget is that number one, Bruce Lee was an excellent athlete. He was like the when he was like 18, he was the cha cha champion of Hong Kong, right? So. You're dancing good enough to win a turn. You probably can move your body pretty well. Number one, number two, he had five years of one martial art, Wing Chun. He spent five years, like five days a week, training this art. So then, when he goes out and looks at other ones, he he can pick and look. It's you know, like you or or Hearn or somebody goes after you built this base. You go look at. Hey, this guy is doing this new shooting method. Okay, I'm going to go take a look at it. Well, that sucks. That sucks. But that reload was interesting. So I'm, I can add that. That's the same thing. But all these, there's all these martial artists out there who go, okay, well, I'm going to take Taekwondo for six months. I'm going to do, you know, a, 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 a Wing Chun seminar. And then I'm going to read a book on fencing. Boom, I'm going to 
I've just created my own martial art. Boom. And, you know, and if you can sell it and get students, you know, by the time you've got a third generation of students, now you are a traditional martial art. And so you've got a little strain of that. Um, and then, then UFC, MMA actually added to that because now you got people going, well, I'm going to open up an MMA school. Well, what the hell does that mean? Well, I took, you know, I had a year of Kempo Karate. I took six months of jujitsu and I've got a set of wrestling DVDs. Boom, I can teach MMA, right? But if you're, if you're new and you don't know anything about martial arts, you don't know, you, you don't know how to ask that. It's just like the guy who's never shot before. You know, here's a guy advertising point shooting. And then here's a guy teaching, you know, whatever, you know, our current stuff. That new guy, the guy teaching the point shooting, maybe he's got the good spiel and he put up the cool Instagram thing. Oh, I'm going to go train with that guy. You know, and you, you, there is that in martial art. Now, it was a little worse pre-UFC. It was easy for a lot of martial arts to go, my art is too deadly to spar. So you could hide uh, uh, the non-functionality of something. One of the things that UFC did, especially by now that we're 25 years into it, it showed the stupidity of that. So yeah, there are still a few people who cling to that crap, but most, most people with half a brain will go, you're too deadly spar, but how come these guys are banging real heavy and nothing coming from that? So it's you have that in the mar, in the martial arts, but it's a it's like we said, it's easier to put the martial arts to the pressure test. You know, um, there was a there was a place I think in Texas, and this supposed jujitsu black belt was teaching a jujitsu class. Well, he wasn't a legit black belt, so another black belt went there to school and said, "Hey, let's roll," and he destroyed him. Not like fighting wise, but you know, in a jujitsu context, made him tap like 1400 times in five minutes. And then the guy said, yeah, I'm really a blue belt. Okay. That's it. It's easier to do that in the martial art world than it is on the, in the shooting side, unfortunately. You know, at a recent class that I taught, I had a student come up to me at the end and, you know, this was great. This was my first class. And they started talking about how great it was. Well, we need to point out that this is both the best and the worst class that you have ever taken at this point. Exactly. <laughs> you know? exactly. So while I, I appreciate your, uh, your compliments and I do think it was a good product, you know, we need to make sure that you see more so yep. you can make it a, an educated opinion right. on things because there's, there's so much stuff that if it's, if it's packaged in a shiny wrapper, you can make it look good. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You can, it, especially now where it's easy to make the package really nice and shiny, you know, throw up a couple of videos on YouTube, put up, you know, a couple of those, you know, I hate those videos where the guy on Facebook puts the video where he's driving in the car, right. And he's speaking to the camera, you know, I hate, I just turn it off automatically, but apparently people like that. You throw up a couple of those, this guy's, this guy's good, man. He's all over the place. Yeah. 
or go post a couple of videos of some really good performances on a shooting drill. And oh, wow, that's there you go. Yeah, that was after I shot 300 rounds previous to this, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to say that. And I pull out this frame and I go three frames later and I pull out one. And I, yeah. Yep, exactly. So. Exactly. It's always funny when you get to see those people actually shoot. Like I've been in class, a lot of classes over the years, and I'll see those guys who are like, oh yeah, put up that fancy video. And I'm looking and going, um, that time on that drill was not what you put up on Instagram. Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's yeah. easy to make yourself look good. See, uh-huh. this is the see, this is one of my problems. I don't know how to do that. I tend to put all my war stories and seminars are about how Cecil screwed up. Right. This is all. Cecil messed this up. Learn from my mistakes, right? I'll put up the, you know, me uh, shooting a drill and I just, it's awful, complete disaster. And I'm like, man, that was not my best day. You know, I, I got, again, I'm thick headed. I need to only show the, the really good stuff yeah. instead of that. Well, Cecil, I'm having a blast and we could keep doing this for hours because we've done this for hours. Oh um, my God. Yeah, I know you've got a class you've got to get to uh, and teach tonight because you're actually yeah, going to do this for real. Um, anything that I didn't ask you about that you want to address? Um, yeah, two things. Right. So um, one, just train, just go out and do something. Don't, don't get too worked up about what you should do. Don't worry about what's the best training program. Where, you know, how do I do this? How do I train this as well? How do I, you know, add a fitness component? I don't care. Just do something. Try to go every day with something. If, if that's one minute of dry fire, beautiful. If that's one minute of burpees, awesome. I don't care. Just don't be that guy online who spends all his time telling you how this sucks. How about doing the work and showing me how good you are, right? That's, that, that's all I care about. We can, we can argue all day long about what's best, you know, like, like me and the guys in the collective, you know, me, Craig, Paul Sharp, Larry Lindemann, Chris Fry, and William April. Um, we we never agreed on everything, right? We always we've got these couple things. I'm sure you you and and Tiffany and Hearn and Murphy and Akil. I'm sure you guys have disagreements on stuff. Mm-hmm. That's cool because you can meet at that level and go. Well, I think this. I think this. Well, this is my reason. Okay, that's a good reason. But for me, this reason, cool. But you're coming from the point of you have you both are doing it. You both are trying to do something and then we can have the discussion, you know, not, not cause your sensei told you something or this magazine article said this, no, you do, you know, that's my big thing. Um, oh, oh. And then everybody in the firearms community knows the tooler principle, right? The whole idea just I would like people to think about that just for take two minutes to contemplate that the average person from a standing start, not the super athlete, not the big guy, just 
average person and between Sergeant Tuller and, and Masada Yub, they've literally run thousands of thousands of thousands, thousands of people through this drill. The average person can, can cross seven yards in a second and a half. I think we can agree that a second and a half is a pretty good draw from concealment. And seven yards, I know when I'm shooting a drill in front of Tom and he's getting ready to score me and we're seven yards, I'm scared to death because that seems like a really long ways away. But it's not, you know? So when, again, it goes to what we were saying with the idea of I never, I never let anybody get close to me. Number one, you're a liar, that you do. And number two, you don't realize how close far away actually is or how far how far away close it well however i don't know i'm not that smart but you know what i mean yeah it's that closeness is farther away than you think it is and so just think about some of that stuff and try to train it don't train with me you don't have to train with me find somebody that where you can do some of that work where you're actually especially a moving target you know, not a flat piece of paper that stays right there, or even on the, um, like on the indoor ranges where they have, where you can move it forward. Even that's not good. You know, a person it's completely different, you know? So it's just one of my pet peeves about stuff. Cause I think if, if more people understood, I mean, that, what did he write that 1989 or whatever, when he wrote that article, it was like such a long time ago. It was such a brilliant step forward but and people compared it but i don't i don't think a lot of people really get to the heart of what it means and how it should infuse your training you know so anyway that was my that was my uh pontification slash rant about that there you go see now even if we got people back listening they just (laughs) dumped it right then after that all right. Uh, where can people find you? Uh, my website's iacombatives.com. And then I've got like a YouTube channel and a Facebook business page and an Instagram page, Instagram page. And they're all immediate action combatives. So if you look there, you can pretty much find me somewhere. And your class schedule's up there. Nah, I got to get it up. It's been a, it's been <laughs> help a me help couple. you, Cecil. Help I'm, me help I'm, you. I'm trying. I've got about two thirds of it down and I like to try to get it up, you know, all of it up, but I've just, I've been busy the last few months. It's not been the best few months. So I, I will get it up by Christmas. I at least will get what I have finalized. It will be up pretty quickly. 